0: This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel
1: forward-thinking farming. Hello and welcome to the June 29th edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Uh, This is Brian Schrader and as always I'm joined by field agronomist from Northwestern Indiana Carl Joran and field agronomist from Southern Indiana Ben Jacob. Good morning guys. Hey Brian. Hey Ben. Morning fellas. So what we want to do today, wheat harvest has started in earnest across the southern part of the state, quickly moving north. Uh, Likely most of the wheat will be harvested over the next two to three weeks, I would guess. It's a great time I think to circle back around, talk a little bit about double crop soybeans. Certainly Ben probably has more acres year in and year out than any of the others of us here on the podcast around double crop soybeans and so I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning right off the bat talking to Ben a little bit about double crop soybeans. So Ben if I'm a wheat grower in southern Indiana and maybe I don't have a lot of experience with double crop soybeans I come to you and I start asking questions where are you going to start off uh, talking about double crop soybeans?
2: Yeah so I think this is a great conversation, given the increase in wheat acres in this area this year, and I think probably more so across the state with a favorable market. Um, So successful double crop soybeans really really start at wheat harvest. Um, You know, we talk early in the year about early er, about planting date influencing soybean yields, and that's that's no different as we think about think about double crop beans. So the first the first key to success is to get your wheat off um, as soon as you can in timely fashion. And that usually that usually means harvesting that around 20% moisture and, and drying the grain. Um, and I might add that wheat does need to be stored at 13% moisture or below. So if you're harvesting that that wet, you either need to be prepared for the dockage you're going to get at the elevator or have a or have a plan to dry it. But harvesting your weed a little bit le- later even if you can move planting date forward um, or earlier in the calendar year by a week can impact your your double crop bean yields quite a bit now part of that has to do with the weather patterns that we usually see in central and southern Indiana and I'm going to say across the whole state you know we're coming up on the end of June and usually we expect to get dry um, at some point now or we're pretty wet. We're pretty wet still down here, um, but that that never lasts forever. So being able to catch some of those late June rains and get the beans germinated and get them up out of the ground is pretty important. So if you can influence that planting day a little bit earlier, um, that that can pay dividends at the end. Um, the other thing I'd say along that is don't don't shortchange yourself on on seeding depth when you're planting your beans and make sure you're getting them a full inch to inch and a half deep so that you are in good soil moisture and you're getting good seed to soil contact. Um, and you know we can we can add into it the the freedom to spray that that we talked about last week. You know you you need to have a plan to control weeds in your double crop beans. Um, you know, we could we could run through the numbers on on the big three on how they can impact yield. I don't think we need to do that again, but having a plan to control them is important. Um, and in most populations of water hemp in, in Indiana, that means that Roundup's not going to be just enough. Um, and if they get very big, you're going to have a difficult time controlling them with liberty and Obviously, obviously that leads us to the enlist E3 system, where you can come back with an oxen, a systemic herbicide that has good activity on some of those tough to control weeds. Um, but the big thing is, how quick can we get these can- these things? Canopy, uh, that's going to mean increasing seeding rate. A lot of a lot of people will recommend increasing by by ten percent. I'm still in the camp in double crop beans, I'd like to see them up close to 200,000 even to 220,000 and you might consider if you if it's an option. um, Decreasing row spacing Uh, if you're usually 30 inch rows you know drop down to 15 if you have I you know there's trade offs and switching to a drill if you're going to a drill you you definitely need to make sure you have have that high population. Um, And then, then think about the stresses that they might see with. With all the fodder from the wheat, um, that's a lot of carbon in the soil. You have the potential to tie up a lot of nitrogen. You may, with the markets where they are, you might consider um, supplemental nitrogen. Beans need a lot of potassium. You might consider supplementing that, or even even a micro pack. Um, and then, then just scout them. I mean, you're, these beans are gonna be younger by the time. Some things like frog eye, and we typically see Japanese beetle pressure come in um, a little bit later in the season, so they're going to be they're going to be younger when we start seeing some of the more common pests that we see across the state. Uh, so make sure to scout them early and see what you're up against, and and have a plan to manage some of those disease and insect pests.
1: Yeah, and I think your population, Ben, that's a key piece to uh, getting the kind of yield that folks are looking for. I, I know you've said in the past that it's really a discussion about nodes per acre more so than plants per acre. The reason we're bumping that population is to try to get uh, as many nodes out there per square foot per acre as we can get because each node is where we've got a, a pod. And so I think that's, you gotta almost change the way you think about population more so than plants per acre, but to that node per acre type of discussion.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and sunlight harvest. I mean, if you, in most, in most crops really you need, if you look at the leaf area as compared to ground area, you need the leaf area to be four times what that ground area is. That's to say that you need, if you're looking at a square foot of ground, you need four square foot of, ro- of leaf directly above that to come close to harvesting a hundred percent of the sunlight that comes down the solar radiation. So Increasing population gets you there quicker, too.
1: Sure. Now, I guess one of the things that becomes at least a topic of conversation when I talk with folks around double crop is what maturity of soybeans should I plant? Uh, There's a couple schools of thought there. I know there are a group of folks that will talk about early varieties. There's others that will talk about later varieties. Uh, Give us, I guess, your thoughts, Ben, a little bit on where you go when you start to make recommendations on what variety or what maturity uh, they should plant.
2: Yeah. So I I'm firmly, firmly seated in the, the full season camp and there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, my experience, it, it expand or extends reproductive growth later into the year. Now the caveat with that is you, you have to watch, you have to watch out for a late frost, um, which is not or an early, an early frost in the fall, is probably a better way to word that, which in most years isn't a huge concern down here. I suspect as you move north, you know, that, that becomes a bigger issue. But the other, the other side of that is harvestability. Um, with late planting, you, in earlier seasons, they tend, to, they tend to start flowering closer to the ground, and it's just really difficult, particularly in wheat stubble, to get some of those lower pods, the, the initial flowers. So getting them up off the ground a little bit, I tend to look for a tall, as tall and as bushy of a bean as I can find, again, to go back to that, um, that sunlight camp capture. Um, And yeah, that's, those are, those are probably the three big things that that I look at as far as varietal selection.
0: Ben, I was just going
2: to say your, your
0: point on um, making sure that Uh, Frost doesn't impede your ability to get get these beans dried down. You know, that's the biggest hindrance we have up north is just can we get these beans to finish Um, and not just finish, but, you know, make sure that we don't have moistures hanging up there in the 20s and we're not able to bring them down to the teens. So just ensuring that uh, from the harvestability standpoint, we don't have Green ropey stems still, and just being, you know, being mindful that we're making our maturity selections, uh, just because it does
2: get to be more of a challenge to run double crop soybeans up up my way. Yeah, well, we can put we can put some numbers around that to kind of loosely help people define what to expect as you move, at least in our system, as you move through maturities, and I'm sure we've discussed this before. But as you go from say a 3-3 bean to a 3-4 bean, that is roughly on average gonna take two more days to reach maturity. And then when you look at planting date, um, essentially for every three days you're pushed back at planting, it adds a day on the back end. So you really compress as planting gets late, you really compress because beans are, are photo period dependent. You're you're compressing the overall growing season of that bean, but using those numbers, I mean, you can get a rough estimate of what you know what maturity you you really need to fall in for your area. I think
1: Ben, I think you you mentioned it. We've got some opportunities technology wise. You mentioned freedom to spray. Uh, we've got water hemp, mare's tail, giant rag, the big three, as you referred to them. That does, especially with having the moisture that we've got across the majority of the state of Indiana coming off of this wheat crop, we know that once we get sunlight in those fields, we're going to see a flush pretty quick of those big three. And you've got a lot of flexibility with the E3 system there to get off to a really good start. And then if you needed to come back and even do a second in-crop application, you've got the ability to do that as well. And so that's something that, allows us uh, to be able to manage our double crop perhaps a little bit better than we've been able to the last couple years because we've been hamstrung, if you will, uh, with some technologies that we just couldn't spray into July. And so we've got some real freedom, some flexibility there that we did not have the last few years to be able to control the weeds.
0: Brian, i'm I'm curious. I'm going to pivot here a little bit. I know um, of some folks that are playing around with intercropping their soybeans into uh, wheat. And I was curious if you've had any uh, key learnings up your way of what works, what pain points there are to that process. As I know that, that catches a lot of attention, but I don't have much direct experience myself.
1: Yeah, we, we have got some growers that have done that. I've got a little bit of experience in a previous life. I spent some time in Ohio as a pioneer agronomist and had some folks that did that quite a bit, uh, that become, uh, more prevalent as we got more 15 inch row planters out there. Folks were planting 15 inch wheat, and then we were coming back and they were interceding soybeans. I think a couple things, uh, that's really important with that system, both in terms of the wheat and the soybeans, in my experience, Carl, is one, first you gotta make sure that you hit the window correctly on when to plant the beans so that you don't hurt your wheat crop. While it gets the beans off to a good start, if you're a little bit late and you interfere with the pollination process on the wheat, you can really cause some significant damage. So my recommendation has always been to tend to go a little bit earlier on those intercrops than late just to protect the heads. The other piece that it goes into is you have to make sure that you can cut the wheat high enough so that you're not hurting the soybeans. But the other piece is you've got to make sure that you understand that those soybeans, at least initially, are going to look a little bit strange. They're going to be tall. They're going to be lanky. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to figure out where break even is and some of those kind of things. A number that years ago was played with was that if I had 90 bushel between two crops, that was break even. I've not done the arithmetic on that here in the last few years, so I don't know if that still holds true, but that was a number that would be talked about quite a bit. It's a great system if you can do it. Uh, not everybody's set up to do that in terms of being able to plant the wheat with a 15-inch planter. There's you know some trade-offs with that because you're probably without some really intensive management on the wheat that 15 inch wheat may not yield quite like what we tend to think of with solid seeded or narrower rows so there's some of that it's a great system if you've got it worked out and you can do it Uh, it certainly gives you a few weeks ahead start I mean these if you were intercropping you'd have your beans in the ground already You, you wouldn't have any of these considerations that Ben talked about uh, but there is a compromise in terms of yield, especially on the wheat when you're doing the the intercropping. Ben, I don't know if you've got anything to add there on the intercropping in, in my mind, there's some similarities, but a lot of differences between the intercropping and the double crop.
2: Yeah, no I don't I don't have really much experience with it down here and that's probably a function of how successful we can get our, our double crop beans to be i mean as even as you go as far north as where i'm at you can have good success but that just grows exponentially as you go south where it's not impossible to get um, you know 90 100 bushel wheat and follow that up with with 50 to 60 bushel beans it's not real common but but it can be done if if the weather hits right and um, you know you look at the markets right now that's that's a pretty tough system to want to interfere with in any way. The only thing I might, I might add is that when I look at an intercrop system and wanting again, once you get the, that wheat off those beans to express their genetic potential, I would look, I would look at um, more full season beans and certainly bushy beans, something that has the potential to branch late in the year and, and fill in, fill in that gap where the wheat was just so you're, just so you're capturing as much sunlight as you can. Mm,
1: I definitely agree with that.
2: I know uh, a-
0: another tangent here. There's, there's some popularity. There's some traction being gained with folks experimenting, going with an ultra early hybrid corn um, and then trying to get beans on the back end of that system. Uh, last year, we had a few growers that attempted that, but didn't have very conducive spring, slow growing conditions. So just didn't, accumulate enough heat units to take the corn crop off to really give the beans a chance but there were folks flying beans on there were folks that um weren't able to get beans back behind it because we were cutting corn so late and so then the debate was well, can i get can i get some oats in there will my oats finish in time so there's a lot of folks doing some pretty interesting stuff and you know good on them for trying something to uh take advantage of all that solar radiation like ben was saying earlier you know increasing that leaf area index across the field that's, that's what's going to maximize our yield potential so you can take full advantage of an entire entire growing season and bang out a couple crops it's a definitely a, a noble pursuit but a lot to still be learned in that in that area when you're bringing corn down from north dakota this far south or manitoba or wherever you're starting to bring some some uh, germplasm south of where it belongs, and so we get some interesting interesting
1: results with that uh, from time to time as well. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Again, I think you're right, trying to bring the genetics that would make the most sense, and I think for you and I, Carl, that probably would make a little more sense as you get down to Ben's geography and further south, some of our other uh, fellow agronomists in southern Indiana. I would think that the heat Of And the potential dry late could be a real limiting factor for that potential idea. I think the other thing that I always chuckle a little bit about is how in agriculture, we always talk about things that are new. But not always that new, you know, this concept of multiple crops in one cropping year, if you go back to the Native Americans and you talk about the three sisters, this idea that they planted their maize and then they had their squash and their beans all in the same field, essentially, at the same time, Um, you know, you go back, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and you've got this same concept. And now we're talking about it as uh, new and different. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: I was gonna say we have we have some um is that call that safrina double crop um over the past couple of years like you said has gained in popularity but realistically i mean we've tried planting a seventy five day corn and everything has to go just right in order to get in order to get that in um i would I would certainly encourage people to try some of that outside of the box thinking um on a small scale, but, but pencil out what, what that looks like on the return side of it. I mean, if you get, say, 140 bushel corn and 35 bushel beans, does that, does that pay for all the trips you're going to make across the field? And if it, goes, if it goes wrong, if we have a tough spring and we don't have enough heat, um, which, again, last year and this year where we had a cool, cool April and in some ways a cool May, you know, where we're not accumulating a bunch of heat really, really hampers those. If you end up not being able to get a bean crop um, to follow but uh, your corn crop, uh, do you have a plan of something else to put in there or, or is that still going to work out economically for you?
1: Yeah, and I think all of this is predicated, you've said it several times, Ben, on the weather. I mean, that's the thing that's an interesting piece about where we're at with the double crop right now. We've got commodity prices that are supporting folks that maybe traditionally have not done double crop. But the other thing is if you look at the rainfall map and the moisture maps for the state of Indiana, the majority of the state of Indiana has the moisture to be able to plant a double crop soybean crop. And that's certainly not always the case uh, for us in July. A lot of times it's just too dry that you're going to plant beans and they'll just sit there until you get the next rain. And sometimes we don't know when that next rain comes in July. So guys, maybe this is a good time to pivot a little bit unless we've got anything else on the double crop uh, to talk about. But I I thought the other thing, we've got a lot of folks that are starting to make plans for a late season fungicide application on corn and soybeans. And I thought we might uh, start to get the ball rolling on that as folks start to consider that application, what to look for, what to think about from that standpoint. You know, it's not been too many years ago that this was just something that a handful of growers did. Now, I would argue that the large percentage of our growers are applying a fungicide in corn and soybeans. I think soybeans probably the higher percentage at the moment, but we've also got a lot of growers that are thinking about, again, going back to where our commodity prices are, about doing some additional things and fungicides very high on that list. I think it would uh, be a great idea to at least start to have this conversation, it'll take more than one episode, I think, to really cover all the nuts and bolts of this, but maybe let's get into it and talk a little bit about fungicide, when to think about it, what do I need to think about from a fungicide application. Carl, I know you've got, obviously, we think about northern corn leaf blight and gray leaf spot as the two main diseases, but I also know you deal with one that at least the central part of the state doesn't see very much uh, with uh, tar spot, So maybe start from your perspective on where you have these conversations with folks who are looking at applying fungicide on corn, and then maybe even talk a little bit about your thoughts on soybean fungicide.
0: Yeah, well, for those of you playing at home, you can take a drink now because an agronomist is going to reference the disease triangle. Um, And so one of the, you know, tropes that uh gets brought up in just about every meeting this time of year is and you know when you're making that decision on how to manage for a pest uh you've got to have a susceptible host which you know most of our uh, hybrids and varieties are for these diseases we're going to discuss and varying degrees of uh you know tolerance or resistance to those diseases um and then you've got the pathogen that normally occurs and then it's uh, how conducive is the environment and there's only a couple things we have control of uh, in that situation and so uh to answer brian's question about tar spot thus far um you know it's a, it's a little early in terms of uh, identifying when tar spots going to start becoming more prevalent but when we think about the passage in itself uh it seems to move in later in the growing season so the conducive conditions that we often see uh they're going to align with uh more lake effect type weather right and so that's why we tend to see it up in the north central portion of the state more so than the northwest or the central portion of the state um so with that cooler wisconsin michigan you know 75 degree type day with uh you know pretty high humidity and uh and a good amount of leaf wetness over the evening time that's kind of where tar spot really thrives and so when you to crank the temperature knob a little bit as you, you know, get further south in the state. That's why we don't see tar spot wreak as much havoc. Um, but that's that's more or less how that pest aligns um, or what what it does um, from a conducive condition standpoint. Uh, from a host perspective, uh, a lot of the corn that Pioneer has in its lineup today has really good late season stay green and uh, that's that's what we're learning is that's an asset when it comes to sending off tar spot Um, so when you have more upright uh, narrower leaves that's pretty good for drought resilience not a very good thing when it comes to tar spot it's we're still trying to figure out the schools of thought here being um, if you've got that late season stay green does that mean that that plant genetically is more resilient against tar spot because it's kind of keeping the tar spot Uh, lesions to a smaller percent of the area because it's fighting it off like you see with gray leaf spot where you can kind of just maintain that smaller area of infection and not let it not let it spread or is it just because you got bigger leaves um greener leaves that it's just going to take the tar spot more time to be able to to knock down uh you know all that leaf area so um either way uh we don't have a great understanding on it uh from that perspective but we do know that our lineup today is pretty resilient when it comes to facing tar spot when you take a look at uh you know some of our competitive benchmarks within uh, a lot of local trials that we do uh usually pioneer seems to fend pretty well uh against tar spot. so long lengthy answer brian so another drink for those playing at home for an agronomist taking you know three minutes to answer a 30 second question
1: No, not at all. You know, a review of the disease triangle is always important when we have a conversation about disease and about fungicide. I think it's important to draw a distinction here. There are two kind of schools of thought when we talk about fungicide, both on corn and soybeans, at least at this point. You've got the typical IPM, I have a disease, I need to control that and protect it, and so I'm going to spray a fungicide to control that. We'll talk a little bit about modes of action and stuff here shortly. Then we've also got this idea of crop health and improving it, and so you've got these two different views. If I've got a disease in the field, I'm going to go spray the fungicide, control that, protect, or if I don't have anything... There's this idea that if I spray my fungicide, I'm protecting, improving or maintaining crop health, which ultimately becomes a benefit at the end of the season and yield. And so it's important that we start there, I think, to talk about the two, and then we can kind of dig in here. Ben, the same question for you that I posed to Carl. You don't have the issues with tar spot, but you've also got a disease uh, that you guys typically deal with year in and year out. Uh, with southern rust? I guess some comments that you would make uh, around that as folks are starting to think about fungicide applications and uh, southern rust, maybe a little bit of northern and gray that comes in as well. W- what would you share with a guy that's starting to think about those applications?
2: Yeah, so as, as we've talked about in previous episodes, southern is the 600-pound the gorilla down here and i think recent evidence would tell us that it's not if it shows up like it was in the past it's it's when it shows up and you know the environment the the environment for it is fairly similar to gray leaf spot um and when you've got when you've got free leaf moisture and hot temperatures and we're getting up in the upper 80s and 90s and and you have you have all this moisture high humidity you have the potential for, for rapid spread. Now, the good thing about Southern is unlike tar spot and gray and northern is it actually has to come into the area. It doesn't overwinter in, in Indiana. So that that typically happens with hurricanes. It brings it up north. Last year it kind of brought it up into Nebraska and then then it just came over with the standard weather weather pattern um from there. And, you know, so if it's obviously in the southern US. Um, we can watch we can watch the weather and if, if you have if you have a hurricane come through that the residual of that storm comes up and tracks right across the Midwest, there's a pretty good chance that it's gonna bring Southern with us with it. Now that along with some of the some of the things that you brought up, Brian, brings us to the question of timing in my mind and and with those two schools of thought you know you get you get the timing um, we've got a green tassel out we're going to go spray it or i'm going to scout i'm going to find what diseases i have and manage them and i think we're, we're dealing with a really complex environment since we have to deal with southern and tar spot both um, because they because they can't be so aggressive and just devastating to a crop My my preference on timing is to manage the diseases that you have, and that may mean with the with all the rain that we've had and the warm weather that we've had, you know, we could we could see gray and northern push a little more aggressively than what we've seen in recent years. But we also have very good genetic resistance against them, so we can stave some of that off through genetics. but there's certainly a benefit to uh, applying fungicides. So I really think we're to the point where we need to actively manage what disease is out there. And that's gonna mean scouting fields. And if you have, if you have gray or Northern at, at the time of tassel, be out before tassel. And if it's creeping up to mid canopy, kind of where your ear is gonna be, um, I, would plan on, I would plan on getting that, that green tassel fungicide application. But if your fields are clean, and you can push that back. Yeah, I know I mentioned it last week, but we, we've got eight weeks of grain fill to protect with that fungicide application. And maybe, maybe with the markets where they've been, maybe you can justify two applications. Um, maybe you can't. But if you, if you don't need, if you're not controlling anything at green tassel and you can push that back, say, to brown silk, 'Cause at most you're gonna get I'm gonna say three weeks is the most residual you're gonna get out of a fungicide application. So if you can bump that back two weeks and get five weeks through grain fill and you're clean and you gotta you've gotta have a disease load build up again. Because that's the other thing to remember. This disease progression doesn't happen overnight. So if you can get if you can get a clean slate, then it has to build back up to build up the disease load where it it is actually causing an issue for you. Um, and that happens and you got three weeks of green fill left. It's, it's typically not going to be a big deal. Now, again, Southern could, could still be some concern, but you've really taken the bite out of the disease at that point. I mean, it, it may, it may hit you a little, but it's not likely to be devastating at that point.
0: Ben, you covered a lot of good ground there. And I think that, uh, it, it's, uh, deemed necessary for us to continue this conversation a, at greater length, because there's a lot of things you brought up that, that uh, jive with me. And there's a couple points I'd like to make as well in there, but maybe we save that for next week's episode for uh, further discussion. Cause I think there's a lot, a lot that uh, merits a little of a deeper dive than what we're going to be able to give it here yet today. Does that sound fair to you all? I,
1: I think so, Carl, yeah. two things I think we should, end here on one you guys have both mentioned leaf wetness it's important to remember that you've got to have a lot of moisture going back to your disease triangle if for some reason it would turn off dry we may not have the disease load that ben mentioned and so that's a key part of this thing as we move forward is humidity and leaf wetness over a long duration of time the last thing that i want to mention is that there are a lot of great resources for monitoring these diseases. Uh, The one that I use almost exclusively for watching these diseases is the ipmpipe.org website. There's monitors on there for uh, those of you down south that are dealing with southern. Uh, Ben, I'm sure you guys watch that quite faithfully. For those of you up north with tar spot, they've got a monitor for tar spot. They've got monitors for northern and gray, and so there are a lot of great resources that kind of can allow us to dig into this timing a little bit more uh, that Ben mentioned. And and Carl, I agree with you. This thing is much larger than a 30-minute segment on a podcast allows us to get into, and I think you're right. I think if folks will stick with us here next week, we'll circle back around, dig into fungicide Uh, applications a little bit more talk some better specifics and really get guys squared away before they they head to the field here in a few weeks on fungicide so with that we'll call this uh, episode a wrap here and we'll be back with you next week to continue our fungicide application Uh, if we uh, piqued your interest on double crop or you've got some questions about getting started thinking about this fungicide application please reach out to us uh ben if folks want to reach out to you on something you've shared on the double crop or on your thoughts on fungicide where can they get a hold of you
2: yeah you can find me and agronomic Musings on twitter at the ben jacob or on facebook at ben jacob agronomy and carl how about for you on twitter at c jorn what about
1: you brad Uh, To get a hold of me, you can uh, try me on Twitter at BK Schrader and on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And so with that, this is the uh, end of the the, uh, June 29th Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. We appreciate you being with us and we hope you'll join us next week when we continue our conversation on fungicide. Have a safe week. We hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy team.
0: Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.